0: Today we begin a new series. We will be considering the prophecy of Micah. This Lord's Day I take for my text Micah chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. that came to Micah, the Morseite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be molten under him, and the valley shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this. And for the sins of the house of Israel, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley. And I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. And all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of a harlot. And they shall return to the hire of a harlot. What is a faithful husband to do when his wife forsakes him and pursues other lovers? Is he to pretend as if nothing is wrong? Is he to extend endlessly his patience and toleration toward outright adultery? Certainly in the earthly realm, we would neither expect a faithful husband nor a faithful wife in such a situation To say nothing, nor do nothing in response to an adulterous spouse. In fact, our confession of faith in chapter 24, section 5, correctly summarizes the word of God in cases of such infidelity in marriage when it says, In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. If this is true, dear ones, in the earthly realm, how much more it is true in the heavenly or in the spiritual realm when the husband in this case is Jehovah and Israel is his bride. Not only is Jehovah, the innocent party, but He is absolutely righteous in all His ways and holy in all His works. Not only is Jehovah the faithful party, but He is most perfect in love and affection toward His unfaithful wife. Although chosen by God out of all the nations of the earth to be His bride alone, Although blessed with his law, although forgiven all of her harlotries, although given the temple, given the ordinances as tokens of his gracious love and affection toward her, Israel continues to spurn Jehovah's invitations of love to come to him. She continues to spurn his offers of communion and fellowship with him. She turns her back upon her husband. What action does the Lord God take? We shall see the action taken by the Lord in this prophecy of Micah as he declares his covenant law. And his covenant lawsuit against his unfaithful bride, Israel. Although Israel, that is the northern ten tribes, and Judah, that is the southern two tribes, have long since been divided into two separate kingdoms, Nevertheless, the Lord continues to address these two separate kingdoms as one bride, as his covenant people. As we study the prophecy of Micah, we shall note parallels between Israel of old and the new Israel. We shall observe parallels between Israel as a covenanted nation and the covenanted nations of this present time. The prophecy of Micah is ancient in one sense, and yet it is as contemporary as the morning news in another sense. Through a study of Micah's prophecy, we shall see the unfathomable grace of Jesus Christ, and yet the awful judgment of the Most High God. Herein is displayed, dear ones, the righteous jealousy of the Lord our God for the affection and devotion of His bride to Him alone. He desires of His bride loving and pure worship and a thankful heart. As we consider the prophecy of Micah, there are three major divisions within this prophecy, and each one of these major divisions is distinguished from the other by the gracious call of God to his unfaithful bride to hear what he declares to her. Hear, that word, occurs at three places in this prophecy and divides this prophecy into three distinct sections. For example, the first time that this occurs in chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, all you people. And then there follows for the next two chapters the first division. And then again in chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear, I pray you. Again, a new division. And next follows Chapters 3, 4, and 5, under that section. And then in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. And then follows the next two chapters in a new division. and section of this prophecy. Three times, the Lord through his prophet says, Hear, listen to me. Hearken unto my words. I appeal unto you. What more can I do to you, my unfaithful bride, than appeal? It reminds me of how the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13.1, This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Paul had come and spoken to the Corinthians three times, three different settings, three different uh, verbal expressions. And he says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. And likewise, God through his prophet Micah now comes. And in three times, three separate times, he cries out to Israel, his bride, and says, hear, hear, hear me bearing witness, as it were, in a court of law. Remember, this is a lawsuit. This prophecy is, in effect, a lawsuit. wherein is brought forward these three verbal witnesses of God, which testify to God's charge against His unfaithful bride. Even as the Lord in the days of Micah, called out to his unfaithful bride, which was rent by division, rent by differences in doctrine and worship, so today the Lord still has only one true bride. There is only one visible church universal throughout the whole world over which Jesus Christ is head. And although this one church is rent by many divisions and exhibits much unfaithfulness in doctrine, in worship, in government, and in discipline, nevertheless, Jesus Christ still pleads with his bride to return to him from all of her spiritual harlotries. You see, dear ones, his righteous jealousy still burns for his wife to be faithful unto Himself and to love Him by being faithful in doctrine. One doctrine. One worship. One government and one discipline. And so the Lord, even as He spoke to Israel of old, so He speaks to the new Israel. Heed His call today, dear ones. As He says in chapter 1, verse 2, Hear, All ye people, as he says in chapter three, verse one, hear, I pray you. And as he says in chapter six, verse one, hear ye now what the Lord saith. My first main point this Lord's day is to consider the messenger of the lawsuit that is brought We find the name of this messenger in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morashite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Let us consider the name of the prophet, Micah is actually a shortened form of Micaiah and literally means who is like Jehovah. Rhetorical question. Who is like Jehovah? Of course, no one is like Jehovah is the answer. There is no one that you can compare to Jehovah. You see, in a sense, the name of this prophet Micah summarizes the whole message that Micah brings to Israel and Judah. Micah's name actually rebukes the chief sin which Israel and Judah were guilty of committing against the Lord their God. Idolatry. For what image of man's making is like Jehovah? Or as Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 18, To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? You see, dear ones, Israel and Judah had departed from the Lord by imagining and inventing new ways of worshiping Jehovah. Or even by introducing the ways and the forms of the heathens into the worship of Jehovah. But all such religious worship, dear ones, as we will see in a little bit, is a lie or is a counterfeit for it replaces the will of God with the will and with the work of man's mind, man's voice and man's hands, which is the very essence of idolatry. It is to worship the creature rather than the creator. It is to prefer in our heart an image of our own making to the invisible God himself. And Israel and Judah had gone after abominable imitations and counterfeits of God rather than pursuing the Lord God himself. Still considering the messenger... What were his circumstances? What were Micah's circumstances? Well, we find that he was from a village within Judah by the name of Morasheth Gath in chapter 1, verse 14, or also called Marashah in chapter 1, verse 15. No doubt the same city. Different pronunciations or spellings of the same city. This was his hometown. Next we note concerning this, this messenger that he prophesied during the reigns of three kings of Judah. First of all, he prophesied during the reign of Jotham. Now concerning Jotham, in Second Chronicles chapter twenty seven, verse two, I think it would be important to have just a thumbnail sketch of each of these kings so that you understand. Some of the things that were going on during the time of his prophecy. Chapter 27, verse 2. We find these words concerning Jotham. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did. Howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord. And the people did yet corruptly. When it says that Jotham entered not into the temple of the Lord, that's not a condemnation, that's approval, because his father Uzziah had entered into the temple of the Lord, you recall, and offered incense, took the place of the priests. But to Jotham's credit, he did not enter into the temple. In that way, he was not like his father Uzziah. But we find concerning the people in general, and the people did yet corruptly. The people during this time were not wholeheartedly committed to the Lord in doctrine and worship. There were things wrong with the people in Judah during this time. The second king under whom Micah prophesied was King Ahaz. We read in Second Chronicles chapter twenty eight, verses one through four, these words concerning King Ahaz. Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and made also molten images for Baalim. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burnt his children in the fire. After the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel, he sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places, and on the hills And under every green tree, here is a king who has fallen into great, great apostasy, fallen away from any semblance of faithful and true worship to the living God. And so he led the people, no doubt, down the same spiral, down the same path to destruction. The last king, the third king, under whom Micah prophesied was Hezekiah. And we read concerning Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 29, verse 2. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Perhaps it was in part due to The prophesying of Micah, the faithful prophesying of Micah and of Isaiah, who was a contemporary of Micah. That God used the word that was preached to bring about a reformation. Because God says that before there is reform and reformation, he always sends forth his prophets to speak forth the word of God as to the nature of the sin, as to how they should believe, how they should worship the living God, how they should live their lives. And so perhaps it was during this time, many years, that Micah and Isaiah prophesied that God was stirring up the hearts of the people and brought into power a king who would bring about great reform within the nation of Judah for we see great reformation brought about under king hezekiah to such an extent that we see in chapter 31 verse 1 we read these words now when all of this was finished all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah and break the images in pieces and cast down the groves And threw down the high places and the altars out of all Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim also and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession into their own cities. A glorious reformation. But it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened because there were faithful ministers. Faithful prophets declaring the word of the Lord. As I mentioned, Micah was the younger contemporary of Isaiah. Because we find that Isaiah's ministry actually began in the reign of Uzziah, Jotham's father. And we find the prophecy, even though Micah's prophecy is much shorter... There are similarities between Micah's prophecy, as you would expect, because they saw the same sins, the same evils, the same problems in Judah, and were addressing the same need and the same way to fix the problem, as it were, to come to God, forsake their sins. But you find an amazing similarity in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, where this picture of the messianic kingdom is mentioned in both prophecies and is nearly identical, word for word, showing further that these were contemporaries one of the other. The last thing concerning his circumstances that I would note from, from this. Section is that the covenant lawsuit is directed against the one bride of Jehovah existing in two separate locations in Samaria and in Jerusalem. And we will again note these prophecies as we continue throughout. Our study of Micah and how they relate to these various cities and what was going on in these cities that brought forth this covenant lawsuit against them. Finally, before we move on to our second main point, let me make this note concerning the messenger. That is his commission. Micah's commission to bring this covenant lawsuit against Israel and Judah came directly from the Lord. For we find in verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. He did not offer his own thoughts. Micah did not bring his own opinion or the opinion of others in this message that he brings to Israel and Judah. He did not strive to obtain a majority position or a consensus before declaring his prophecy, for this message came from the Lord God. He did not try to make his message more acceptable to the people at large by throwing in some humor or appealing to the good nature of the people. Like all of the prophets of old. He knew his message would not be well-received initially by the people. But as a prophet, he was not out to win a popularity contest or to gain the approval of men. He was the voice of the Lord God. He was an ambassador representing the king. He had one Important commission above all else, and that was to declare the word of the Lord in all its purity and in all of its power, to not add to nor take away from, as we read from Acts 20 earlier, to proclaim the whole counsel of God to the people. Although the ministers of the New Covenant are not prophets in an extraordinary sense, as was Micah, nevertheless they have a prophetic function in that they too are not to be judged by how dynamic they are in the pulpit. They are not to be judged by the size of their congregation or how many They can get to follow them. They are not to be judged by the number of degrees that are behind their name. They are, dear ones, to be judged by their faithfulness to the message God has given them to preach. How faithful are they? Are they a faithful steward? Because the ministry is a stewardship committed by God and entrusted by God to those whom He calls. Have they been faithful to that stewardship? John in Revelation 1.20 calls ministers angels because they have been given a divine message and are sent out on a divine mission. John also refers to ministers as stars in Revelation 120. For as stars, ministers are to reflect the glorious light of the gospel to all who will hear in this very dark world in which we live. This commission of Micah in preaching the word of the Lord is even referred to in another book of the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 26. In this particular section of the scripture, Jeremiah had preached the same message to Judah as Micah had. Jeremiah was subsequent to Micah's ministry. And they the princes and the kings were about to kill Jeremiah. They were about to destroy him for the message that he brought. But we note in verse 17 of Jeremiah 26, "...then rose up certain of the elders of the land and spake to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah the Morisite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field." And Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of a forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him at all to death? Did he not fear the Lord and besought the Lord? And the Lord repented him of the evil which he had pronounced against them. Thus might we procure great evil against our souls. That is, We will bring great evil upon ourselves if we do not heed the message of Jeremiah as they heeded the message of Micah in his day. So here's an attestation, an affirmation of the faithful ministry of this prophet and how God used him to bring about a reformation in Judah. My second main point is that we will now consider the husband. Of the lawsuit. The offended husband of this covenant lawsuit in Micah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple, for behold, the Lord cometh forth out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth; And the mountain shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. Here we find the reaction of the covenant husband in this marriage. Here begins the first major division in Micah's prophecy, as we noted earlier. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth. And this section continues to the end of chapter 2. Micah comes at this point, dear ones, as God's prosecuting attorney. He brings... Charges against the people of Israel and Judah. He calls them and summons them to a court to hear the charges that are preferred against them by the Lord God, the righteous and holy husband of Israel. And what they hear are charges of spiritual adultery. That is idolatry, primarily, chiefly. The Lord himself is the faithful husband to his bride will testify against her from his holy temple in heaven. Perhaps the people at this point in time had trusted in their religious privileges to save them from the righteous anger of a jealous God. Perhaps they looked to their external covenant relationship in Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to avert God's anger. Or maybe it was the fact that God had chosen them out of all the nations of the world to be His bride. And for that, they thought, God surely will not forget us. God surely will not bring His his judgment upon us for our idolatry. We are His bride. Or possibly they reasoned that God could not forget them because He had given them the law He had given them the temple. He had given them the priesthood and the feasts and the ordinances. He could not now take them away from Israel and Judah. But dear ones, the Lord will hear none of these excuses or reasons or rationalizations at all. For the countless outward privileges which he freely bestowed upon his people, Will not excuse them for their unfaithfulness to Him, but rather will, in fact, make them all the more responsible for their sin against Him. The fact that they have enjoyed the privileges in all of these ways does not excuse them. God does not wink at our sin because we are His people. It makes us more accountable, we have more light. We have more understanding. God has been merciful to us. Therefore, we are obligated and duty-bound to love and to adore Him. And so is Israel. Dear ones, how we too can so easily fall into the snare of pride in thinking that because we are the children of Rutherford, Gillespie, Cameron... Cargill and Renick, God will, will simply wink at our sins. Or because we own the lawful covenants of our forefathers, the National Covenant and the solemn legan Covenant, and because we offer to Him pure outward forms of worship that He will receive us even though our hearts may be far from Him. Let us not deceive ourselves. God will not be mocked by such rationalizations and excuses. If we are children of the Covenanters, we must live according to those principles. We cannot simply profess a faith. We must live that faith. Because it was the Jews who thought that nothing could happen to them because they were related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That they were safe and secure. But such is not the case. And it wasn't the case back in the time of Micah either. They could not think that because they had the mere physical temple Because it was standing in their midst there in Jerusalem that they were safe. It seems that many had taken on a superstitious attitude toward these external privileges. Even as we can do with our external privileges, whether baptism, thinking that because we have been baptized, thinking that because we have Christian parents, That everything's okay. Dear ones, everything is not okay if we do not live up to the sign and the seal of the covenant which God has given to us. And covenant children, it is not okay for you to live your life as you please if you have received the sign and seal of baptism. You are more obligated to live according to that sign and seal than the heathen children outside of the church. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, we find the prophet figuratively depicting the Lord descending from His holy temple in heaven, trampling under His feet, all of the high and lofty places in Israel and in Judah. Those high and lofty places figuratively speak of those who are proud and arrogant and have exalted themselves by their idolatry, their spiritual adultery against the living God, whether they be kings or princes, whether they be prophets or priests, Whether they be commoners or slaves, God will trample all the haughty looks and haughty speech and haughty worship, which is idolatry. God will send even upon them the Assyrians and the Babylonians to punish them for their idolatry. Dear ones, do we have the spiritual insight today to see that the Lord has come forth from His holy temple and has testified against the church's unfaithfulness and against our nation's unfaithfulness to him? Do we still believe that God is in his holy temple, that he has not come forth and is not pouring forth his wrath and his judgment? Are we so blind and deceived as to think that we can continue, that the church can continue to pollute and corrupt the Lord's doctrine, worship, government, and discipline, and not receive his judgment. Do we not see God's coming from his holy temple in judgment by means of natural disasters, physical calamities, like floods and tornadoes and ice storms and earthquakes? Has God not left his holy temple in heaven when he pours forth such catastrophes upon us? Has the Lord not left his holy temple and is he not pouring out his judgment upon his church when the church is rent by hundreds and thousands of divisions? Each church Believing something different from the next church? Each church worshiping in a different way from the next church? Each church governing in a different way from the next church? Has God not left his holy temple? And is he not pouring forth his judgment upon his church? Has the Lord not left His holy temple in heaven and is He not pouring forth His judgment upon covenanted nations? When we see idolatry and false religion running rampant in those nations intolerated by the civil magistrate, when we see righteous and faithful covenants of forefathers ignored, broken, shamed and trampled through the mud has the Lord not left His holy temple when we see in our midst in our nation blasphemy and the profaning of God's name in every form of medium. Whether we see it in movies or whether we see it In television of some kind, whether we hear it in the music, whether we read it in the newspapers or in books, is God not pouring forth his wrath in this way? Or in the destruction of families, or in giving ungodly magistrates and unfaithful shepherds in churches, or in the murder of unborn children or the rampant increase of adultery, sodomy, fornication and pornography. Do we simply close our eyes to all of these things and say, God's content in heaven. We're doing our thing here upon the earth. But God is still in His holy temple in heaven. Dear ones, He is still A jealous husband. And he still calls his bride to love him in all purity of doctrine and worship. Dear ones, there is coming a time when the Lord will judge the great whore of Babylon. When he will judge the Romish church and her papacy. And will judge all of her daughters who have learned well to apply her corrupt inventions and corruptions in doctrine and in worship. So the Lord says in Revelation chapter 17, verses 16 through 18, he will cause ten nations to turn upon the whore of Babylon and to burn her and to destroy her. And so there is a time of judgment coming upon false antichrist religion. And therefore the Lord cries out to his true bride, wherever she may be, in the words that we find in Revelation chapter 18. Verse 4. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. And that ye received not of her plagues. Don't remain in the whore of Babylon. Don't remain in the daughters who imitate the whore of Babylon. Come out of her. Be separate, ye my people. The last point is... That we will consider the cause of the lawsuit that is brought against Israel and Judah. The cause. In verses 5 through 7, Micah chapter 1. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire, and all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of a harlot, and they shall return to the hire of a harlot. So often our eyes fall upon abortion or sodomy as being the chief sins for which God will judge a people. And so many professing Christians Join with any religious group that opposes these sins of abortion and sodomy. These professing Christians believe they have a common enemy in abortion and sodomy. However, according to God's Word, those heinous sins are simply the fruit of the root sin which leads to all other sins in our lives, in the family, and in the church, which is idolatry. According to Romans 1.18, the Lord's wrath is being poured out upon the world even today. And in that section of scripture, the Apostle Paul says, That because people have committed idolatry and worship the Creator or the creature rather than the Creator, God gives them over to all other forms of sin and wickedness and unrighteousness. Because of their idolatry, He gives them over to sodomy, to immorality, to murder. To every other kind of evil and wickedness, thus such professing Christians who would stand with any religious group that opposes sins like abortion or sodomy actually stand with many who are blatant idolaters and who live and practice and teach heresy, which is the very cause of the abortion and the sodomy. For you see, dear ones, when we carelessly begin to ignore, neglect, or despise the first four commandments of God concerning our duty to Him and our love which belongs to Him supremely and chiefly, it will not be long before we find ourselves breaking the last six commandments concerning our duty to our fellow man. For when we have little or no reverence for the Lord God himself, we will have little or no reverence for man who is made in his image. The one will naturally follow from the other. And if it be asked by Israel or by Judah, why is God so angry with us? Why is he pouring out his wrath and his anger upon his bride? The answer is given by the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 5. For the transgression of Jacob is all this. And for the sins of the house of Israel... What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? You see, the Lord here declares that his righteous anger is due, first of all, to the transgression of Samaria, which refers to the corrupt worship established by Jeroboam in that nation. If you... Care to later on look and to see the corrupt worship which was instituted by Jeroboam in in Israel after the ten tribes separated from the two, and they placed Jeroboam over them as king, and he instituted a a new way of worshiping God. He established calf worship. He instituted a new priesthood, a new ministry. He established new holy days. He didn't intend by so doing to institute a religion that was not Jehovah worship. He was simply instituting a, by or for the reason of political expediency. A new religion so that the people would no longer travel down to Jerusalem to worship God and thereby defect from Israel. He instituted a new religion for reasons not that God had given. But simply, man-made reasons. And we find in First Kings chapter 12, verse 33, that it says, So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month, which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So he kept basically all or many of the same feast festivals and holy days. They had a Sabbath that they observed. It's interesting when you consider the worship which was instituted in the northern kingdom of Israel. We find these words in Amos. Chapter 5, verses 21 and 23. This is spoken against the northern kingdom of Israel. I hate, God says, I despise your feast days. And I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Remember we read about all the solemn assemblies which God instituted in our Old Testament reading today from Leviticus chapter 23. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel instituted their own solemn, holy convocations. Verse 22 says, Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, see, they kept the same offerings, I, God says, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. This is particularly interesting. Take thou away from, the, from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. And in chapter 6, verse 5, following up on that same theme, it says concerning the worship of Israel, that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves Instruments of music like David. They invented to themselves instruments of music like David. It was not what God had ordained. It was not authorized worship by the Almighty God, which they offered to him. It was similar, but it was a mixed bag. It was a corruption of the true worship. They still worship Jehovah. But eventually, as we see when Jeroboam instituted this new form of worship, where that led was eventually to the outworking of worship to Baal and to other false gods. Because you see, dear ones, idolatry is not stagnant. It doesn't remain neutral Idolatry is dynamic and unless it stops, it will continue to progress and grow in a person's life and in a church and within a nation. Until the people of God say, no more will we worship by men's inventions. No longer will we offer to God our own thoughts in our own ways, the works of our own hands, man will continue to be turned over by God to greater and greater depths of idolatry. And it doesn't happen all at once. Idolatry did not progress all of a sudden to actual worship of Baal. But over a few generations, one thing led to the next. Idolatry, dear ones, will always seek to be self consistent with itself. And it becomes absolutely self consistent when we finally erect images in our churches and bow down to them. It was not only the transgression of Samaria for which the Lord's anger was brought. Against his people, but also for the corrupt worship that was tolerated in Jerusalem. Where there was the temple, where there was the true priesthood, where there was the the true ordinances, God brings the same judgment upon Judah, upon Jerusalem, for corrupting the true ordinances which God had given them. And this occurs in the, we first note the occurrence of this worshiping at high places in 1 Kings 3.2. 1 Kings 3.2. In the reign of Solomon. It's very interesting. Why was worship instig- uh, instigated? Why did they begin to worship at the high places? Notice, here's the reason. It says, only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. In other words, because the temple was not yet built, even though there was a place where God said, where his altar, where his His uh, Ark of the Covenant was, there the people were to come wherever that Symbol and that sign was located. There was not a house built. And therefore, the people began offering sacrifices to God. It's not the sacrifices that are condemned. It's not who they're offering them to that is condemned. It's the fact that they're offering them in places where God has not ordained that is condemned. They were not bringing their offerings and their sacrifices to the one place where God had authorized and eventually, having begun there, it progresses, idolatry progresses within Jerusalem and Judah until we find in chapter 14, verse 23, these words. During the reign of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, for they also built them high places and images and groves on every hill high hill and under every green tree what may have appeared to the people to be a good reason with good intentions to have high places in many various places around Jerusalem and other parts of the, of the country developed and grew again to the point that at these high places images were built false worship was established That is why we find in Hosea chapter four, verse fifteen that it says that God says to Judah, though though Israel offend, Judah, don't you follow them? Though Israel goes into various forms of of false and corrupt worship, Jerusalem don't imitate their practices. Don't follow them in this path of idolatry. See, this is likewise the error of many Protestant and Reformed churches that have fallen away from the regulative principle of worship, which is stated in the Second Commandment, and which is summarized by this or in this statement, what is not authorized in the New Covenant is forbidden. Many have fallen away from that simple principle. What is not authorized in the New Covenant is forbidden. Because Protestant churches are now operating on the same principle as Rome, even though they have not progressed to the extent and to the self-consistency that Rome has with her idolatry. Protestant and Reformed churches today in principle except basically this summary of the worship principle what is not forbidden in the word is permitted what god does not expressly forbid he allows and so we find even in protestant and reformed churches that monuments of idolatry and worship have been established whether various kinds of holy days, like was established in Israel, the ten kingdom or the ten tribes of Israel, or whether the Romish use of instruments in worship, which Samuel Rutherford calls a monument of idolatry, or uninspired hymns. Invented by man's mind, by man's will, rather than the inspired hymns we find in the psalms. Or images, pictures, statues, crosses of every kind that are placed as a means of worshiping God within the church. The words of Calvin on this text are precisely to the point. Listen closely to what Calvin says from his commentary on this passage of Scripture. The Israelites of the northern kingdom had so fallen that they were altogether degenerated. Nothing could be seen among them that had an affinity to the true and legitimate worship of God but the jews of the southern kingdom of judah had retained some form of religion they had thus abandoned themselves but yet they had a mixture of super they had not thus abandoned themselves but yet they had a mixture of superstitions such as one would find were he to compare the gross popery of this day notice, notice closely with that middle course which those men invent who seem to themselves to be very wise, fearing forsooth as they do the offenses of the world, and hence they form for us a mixture. I know not what from the superstitions of the papacy and from the Reformation, as they call it. They mix papacy and the Reformation together, Calvin says. Something like this, Calvin continues, was the mixture at Jerusalem. We, however, see that the prophet pronounces the same sentence against the Jews that are in Jerusalem as the Israelites in the northern kingdom. And that is that God will allow nothing that proceeds from the inventions of men to be joined to his word. Since then, God allows no such mixtures. The prophet here says that there was no less sin on the high places of Judea than there was in those filthy abominations which were then dominant among the people of Israel. God admits of no mixture in his worship. Not partial, not slight, but of no mixture. It is idolatry. It is spiritual Adultery. It is to, to, to depart from the Lord our God. Introductory sermons do, at times, tend to be a little lengthy. I'm drawing close uh, to the close of my sermon, but I have one point that I want to make before the conclusion. I would simply remind you what an idol is in its most basic sense. An idol is erecting the will and work of man in place of the will and work of God. Whether that's in our affections, whether it's in our speech or whether it's in our behavior and our works. Idolatry may be unintentional or it may be done with even good intentions that an idol, dear ones, takes God off his throne and places the creature in some way on the throne, whether by way of man's invention, man's work, man's reason, man's mind, man's will, or man's affections. You see, it's argued by Rome and by others that man-made images within the church And used for worship are simply a book for the illiterate in order that they might understand God and his truth. Images are simply to teach the simple-minded, those who can't read, to look upon the image and to be able to understand truth, to understand God. But beloved, God forbids man from making his own images for worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, a passage we should have etched into our minds when it comes to the use of images. Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 through 19, God says this, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. Ye saw no image of God, no similitude of God. God continues in verse 16. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the sea. And lest thou lift up thine eyes into the heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even all the host of heaven shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, Which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. You see, it starts off, God says, by making similitudes or likenesses of God, establishing images in the worship by means of worshiping the true God. But it leads to, eventually, God says in verse 19, actually bowing down and worshiping the creature. That's where it leads. Let us never, therefore, think that any idolatry is small and insignificant. Why does God forbid all images? Why does God forbid these images? Because they're all lies. They're all lies. Habakkuk 2.18 says this. What profiteth the graven image that the maker thereof thereof hath given it? Notice. The molten image and a teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusteth therein to make dumb idols. Images teach lies. They don't teach the truth. God has given us two visible signs. Signs. Images, if you will. Two visible signs. Two outward signs. Not of man's making, but of his making. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And those are the only two that we should use of a visible nature in worship. In our text... God makes clear that for these sins He will judge both Israel and Judah and the hire or wealth that has come from their idolatry will be given over to other harlots, namely the Assyrians and Babylonians who will crush and beat their gold and silver from their idols and take them to themselves. Idolaters, so often through the Scripture, are crushed by other idolaters. God sends the Assyrians and Babylonians upon Israel and Judah. My conclusion. Three things to keep in mind. Three things to remember as you leave today. Remember, dear ones, that idolatry is the root sin from which all other sins proceed in your life and mine. Therefore, let us be ever so diligent that we do not grow cold or indifferent in our lives to Jesus Christ or to his ordinances. You see, the key to overcoming idolatry is to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ when we become stagnant and dormant in our Christian life, when our faith grows cold, when our love becomes indifferent and we walk away from the Lord, that's idolatry. And one idolatrous act or affection leads to an an idolatrous act and leads to another one. And if we're not careful, we are quickly immersed in idolatry. And so let not your faith, dear ones, become stagnant. Let not your knowledge of Christ become simply internalized. Live out your faith. Make your faith in Jesus Christ vibrant. Make it known to your children. Let it be lived out in the way in which you speak, in the way in which you love others and show mercy, in the way in which you pray before your children. Dear ones, there's nothing that will cause our children to think that our faith is of no great importance than to hear the same old dry prayers day after day after day. Simply going through the motions of prayer before your children. Let your children hear and see the vibrancy of your faith. Let your spouses see in your life that God is at work and He is changing those sins in your life. Let your spouse see in your life that you are sorry, that you grieve over the way you offend her or him. That's the way we keep our faith living and abiding. And commune, dear ones, above all, commune with the Lord Jesus Christ daily. Do not neglect nor ignore those times of secret and family worship. Do not make excuses why there were more important things to do than to spend that time with the Lord your God. husbands or wives. What would you think of your spouse if he or she became more devoted to a picture of you or a watch or a ring that you had given to her or him rather than being devoted to you yourself? What would you think of your spouse if they did not care anything about you but had this photograph? And just cherish this photograph or this ring. But didn't care how they spoke to you. Didn't care how they treated you. But oh, that picture. Oh, that ring or that that necklace or that piece of jewelry. That was important. You see, this is what we do with the Lord our God when we do not treasure Him. When we do not love and appreciate Him the Creator above all creation when we do not love and appreciate Him who gives us all things to enjoy. And finally, dear ones, remember the name of Micah. Remember what that name means. Who is like Jehovah to whom will you compare our God in Micah chapter 7 verses 18 through 19 this is our God he's a God of fierce wrath and anger holy indignation but dear ones he's a God of great mercy but we find in the closing verses of Micah these words, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Who is like Jehovah, our God? Please stand with me in prayer. Lord our God, we appeal to Thee the name of the greater Micah, the Lord Jesus Christ. For He is Thy supreme revelation. As we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we proclaim, Who is like our God? We praise Thee, our Father, that Thou hast spoken to us this day. We pray, Father, that Thou would grant to us ears to hear and the will to obey, that we would not be like Israel and Judah of old. Father, we pray that Thou would would cause us to flee all idolatry in our own lives, idolatry in, in the church, that Thou would grant, Father, purification of idolatry in this nation. But, Father, we know it will not occur apart from the faithful preaching of Thy Word. And so, Father, we pray that Thou would raise up more faithful ministers who, like Micah and Isaiah, would faithfully stand upon the truth and proclaim the unchanging Word of God. Lord, we commit ourselves to Thee this day, We ask that Thou would use us for Thy glory, that our faith in Thee would not become cold, that our love would not become stagnant. We ask, Lord, that Thou would cause us to persevere in the midst of great trials and persecution, in the midst of many weaknesses and failures in our own life. O God, let us not succumb. But, Father, as we have read, Thou wilt subdue the iniquities of thy people. We pray, Father, that thou would subdue our iniquities, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale,